This is Daniel Fagella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, and you're listening to part two of our special AI Futures Saturday series on AI and the future of the human experience. Our kickoff episode last week was with none other than Stephen Wolfram, speaking about AI, blockchain, and how day-to-day life might change as these technologies become not just more common, but vastly more capable. Today, we get a different perspective. Every episode in this eight-part series, airing every Saturday from now and then for another six Saturdays, is a new window into how artificial intelligence might change day-to-day life, uh, not just next year, but decades from now, when these technologies, again, are vastly more capable. Our guest this week is Dr. Robin Hansen. Some of you are aware of Robin Hanson. If you've had an interest in strong AI or what is sometimes called artificial general intelligence, you've probably run into Dr. Hanson's work. Robin holds a PhD in social science from Caltech and is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University. His first book was called The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life When Robots Rule the Earth, and that was published in 2016. I actually saw Robin give a talk back in 2016, I think right before that book came out. So I've been following Robin for some time. We first talked nearly 10 years ago about the topic of artificial general intelligence. It's certainly a passion of mine, the long-term consequences of AI. It's been great to follow his work, see him publish more work, and now be able to bring him back to talk about What happens not only when AI becomes more powerful, but when we might be able to replicate human consciousness in machines? We're talking decades into the future, and of course we're talking hypothetical situations, but again, the purpose of this series is about what the future of the human experience is like. If you are sitting on your couch now, thinking that in 30 or 40 years, you're going to be doing about the same thing, maybe with a slightly nicer iPhone, Uh, you are grossly mistaken. And while we don't know exactly what the future might hold, it will be radically different. And again, the purpose of this series is to show how life might be different. So Age of M, just as a teaser here for Dr. Hansen, stands for emulation, when we can actually emulate individual human consciousnesses by scanning human brains. This is a technology that Robin believes will be viable in the decades ahead, in addition to strong artificial intelligence. And how those two come together to change, again, the nature of work and life is something that he has a unique perspective on and one that I think is warranted in a series that's intended to be really genuinely eye-opening. And Robin does exactly that in this episode. Uh, Never fails to bring some interesting ideas to the table, and I hope that you'll enjoy this second episode in our AI Futures series. Without further ado, this is Dr. Robin Hansen here on this AI Future series of the AI and Business Podcast. So, Robin, it's a pleasure to be chatting with you in an audio interview again. It's been, I don't know, some eight or nine years or something crazy like that when James Hughes first introduced us. I want to get into the first question and ask about your thoughts on what do you think is pulling us into this more virtual human experience? What are the factors that are pulling us into our computers, into virtual worlds today? What are the big ones for you? Well, honestly, work, if it ever has a choice, matters the most. Hmm. That is, you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as mostly, you know, social creatures and leisure creatures, and there's this work thing off on the side, but we don't like to talk about it. We don't like our sitcoms to, to display it, et cetera. We're all into the other things, but honestly, like work is a core part of our world. <laughs> And when work demands something, uh, we listen, we, we react. And this is something where work is demanding. Uh, so over the last de- few decades, you know, we've had lots of social media and chatting and things like that, but work hasn't been that much of a driver of those things. And we'll still have more of those things. But I think over the next few decades, 
work will drive a change in how we use computers and how, how we relate with computers. And so again, when work, when work demands something, we listened. Uh, so, so the key point, obviously at the moment during the pandemic is we've realized we're supposed to separate and, and get distance. And that's really hard when we're, when we're in the office together. And so we've been struggling to spread out and do distance work, remote work. Obviously we're not very good at it and it's, it's painful, but it's pushing us ahead in that direction. The pandemic will end at some point, hopefully. Yeah, cross your fingers. Forever. But I think there's, there's a strong fundamental pull in that direction over the coming decades. So people often talk about like commuting costs or office costs or things like that. And you know, whether you like to socialize and those all matter, but those are all, I think, missing the big picture, missing the fundamental push. And that's agglomeration. So one of the main reasons we're rich today is not just that we have a lot of tech and science, it's that we clump together in big cities. Clumping is this huge important thing that makes an enormous difference to the economy and remote work will allow more clumping. That's the key important point to understand. A lot more clumping. On the kinds of tasks that we can do remotely, the whole world can even become one big clump from the purpose of, of doing that thing. This idea of clumping is very abstract and often, in my opinion, kind of a funny way of framing it. But what you're talking about is bringing people with shared or different expertises together around tasks where collaboration is required. This is what you're talking about. Well, I would say it as, as the how many options do you have? So when you're in a small town and you look at how many churches could I go to, how many stores could I go to, how many workplaces could I apply to, there's a limited number of options. Yep. And when you're in a huge city, there's far more options about these things. And so the workplaces can specialize a lot more, the stores can specialize a lot more, the schools, the churches, they can all specialize a lot more. You can get a niche and each kind of thing can be done in a very specialized, coordinated way. And that's how cities are so much more powerful. The, the industrial economy is, is powerful in part because we can ship goods across the world. And so there can be a company that specializes in making one thing and then it ships it across the entire world. And we get this enormous gain from specialization there. But we have a lot of kinds of jobs where we can't ship them around the world. We've got plumbers and hairdressers, yep. and receptionists and store clerks. And for those kind of jobs, we have not gained the kind of specialization gains that we've gotten in factories or in other areas where, where the entire world can specialize and each person in the world can do their very special thing. But those things will become more specialized with remote work. Yeah. So how does this specialization dynamic and this broad idea of clumping, which is the first time I've heard you use the term, maybe you've written blog posts about it. How does this feed into the virtual space? Do you more see the collaboration tools that are developing in the virtual space to become really par for the course and required? Because to gain that niche advantage, to gain that competitive advantage, we're going to have to start to specialize more and more. How do you see the interaction between the virtual human experience and, and this idea? There's two key drivers. One is for office jobs, you want to have a environment that you and your office coworkers are working in that feels natural and that works socially. And virtual reality elements will be powerful part of that. So, you know, you'll have not just an array of Zoom windows where you're talking to other people, but we will find ways to make that more natural and as if you were in a cubicle farm or something. And as if you could walk up and chat with somebody, we will find yeah. ways to make it more natural because that's really important for productivity. As you know, we just are not as productive staring at that array of windows as we would be walking around in an office. Yeah. And that's just about our habits of socialization and cues and what we see out of the corner of our eye and what we overhear. All that stuff we, we've 
developed our sorts of habits and, and techniques for taking advantage. And we just don't know how to do that very well online, but we will figure that out. And part of figuring that out will be creating virtual environments. Yeah. <laughs> environment map onto, you know, ourselves sitting in our desks at home or whatever, but that are productive, that allow us to have those same sort of social interactions. I've shared your sentiment around this work as, as driver, where for me, virtual reality is not actually all that interesting in gaming. I think it's interesting because we'll flesh out the bugs, but I really don't think it's interesting in gaming. It's interesting when, like right now, if you're going to be a salesperson and you tell your boss, you know, when you're applying for the job, I don't have a cell phone and I'm not really interested in using one. Well, you're just not going to get the job, right? I mean, you're a salesperson. I mean, especially when we get back to being able to travel around, it's like you're not going to be able to operate like that. Or if you want to be anything at all in like marketing or operations, but you don't know how to type, it's like these are major problems. There's going to become a point where VR will be par for the course. You just won't be able to not be operating in a really immersive environment to be an effective coder, to be an effective salesperson, to be an effective whatever. And, and it feels to me like once that's the case, then there's really no going back. Um, and it feels like maybe you're sharing this idea. The term augmented reality is a closer to virtual reality yeah. because the, the term virtuality makes you imagine like some castle with a dragon or yeah, something yeah. that has nothing to do with the world around you. And that's not going to be very interesting or important. The point will be to create environments that are like the world around you and connect in important ways. That's the thing that will be valuable. So, for example, in the building you're in, I can see behind your camera there, there are struts in the wall, there are electric wires, et cetera. But... What you see is paint on the walls, you see carpet on the floor, you see pictures. That's a virtual environment. That's how we have taken the fundamental physical environment around you and painted it over with what we want to see. Is that real or virtual? I mean, the key point is, is it's flexible, right? And so there are parts of the environment that are like behind the wall, the struts and the wires, those aren't flexible. You really can't live without those and the pipes, right? But you can have the walls be different colors, you can have the furniture be in different places, but they're there for reasons for facilitating your life and things you do. So similarly, in the future, in quote unquote virtual worlds, these will be worlds between people in different places who are working together, who need to do certain things, and part of the environment will be flexible in the sense that it can change and adapt to their needs. Yeah. It doesn't mean it, but they will see it as real. It's just like your wallpaper is real. Your carpet is real. I mean, it's flexible and can be changed, but it's there for a reason. And that what, what makes it real for you. And similarly, this virtual reality will be real for you in the sense that the things you see yep. will be there for a reason that makes sense and helps you do things. Yeah, I mean, just like, you know, imagine how absurd it was in 1970 when, you know, you're a big oil and gas company and everybody's talking about computers and you're just like, what are these little files, this imaginary thing inside an imaginary screen and what does that even do? But of course, it's real. It facilitates, you know, the transmission of knowledge, the making of decisions, it drives right. things. And so the same thing is going to be the case in the next level of immersion where we go deeper and farther. And as you had mentioned, augmented reality will be a lot of this. I imagine some environments where we just really are going to want a completely created new space that isn't my desk. But in many cases, it's going to be an extension of of what we have. But I mean, most offices are in a sense, artificial environments, right? Yeah. You, yeah. you have your desk in one place and somebody else has a desk somewhere else <laughs> yeah. and they've got a phone and there's a hallway between you. I mean, that's an artificial environment there primarily to facilitate you interacting with each other and finding each other. And so we'll have environments like that that are more on the computer, but cubicle farms and the office desk in the corner, they are there for reasons that they have a logic to them. And that makes sense. You can't artificially swap one for the other and, you know, 
then it wouldn't make sense, right? And that that's how virtual worlds will be too. They won't seem virtual. They will make sense. They will have a, a structure that is functional. Yeah, we'll crack the norms of that being usual. Like, you know, maybe I can imagine all kinds of things and maybe you've got specific examples, but potentially some sort of window within our office that kind of looks out to what appears to be just my colleagues sitting next to me doing whatever they're doing, right, but course. they're not actually there, of course, but, but it's just a window. It's convenient. I can turn it off if I want. I can turn it on if I want. We're going to search in the space of those things, but where, where you end up yep. will be, you'll sit at your desk and around you will be things you see some of which are screens and yeah. some of which are virtual, that makes sense to you as how you can relate yes. to your colleague, yep. how you can help them interact with them. So, so for you, whatever the amalgamation of new virtual layering is that facilitates productive and fruitful work will be a major driver in what sucks us into that reality. No matter what its manifestation, if it produces that kind of productive output, it's going to help us yank in, if you will. Well, right. So being able to do that better will definitely make it easier to switch to more remote work. And that's sort of a push, but the pull will be this enormous productivity gain we will get by being out of it. So I said, the first part is these offices that will just be more productive. The next step after that is to do actual physical jobs remotely, not just drive a truck remotely, cut somebody's hair remotely, do plumbing remotely. And that will be later because the, the main limitation there is just going to be having good physical sort of telerobot avatars. Yeah. But those will come within the next few decades. When you go into a shop and you see, you go up to the clerk, the clerk may well be not physically present. They may well come into that clerk robot body at that moment as they need. And if you need them to go in the back and get something, they'll go in the back and get something. But, you know, that's for very relatively easy jobs, but we will work up our way up sort of physical difficulty. I, in a blog post recently, I said, you, you can imagine a plumber. So today a plumber is a jack of all trades. He sort of does all plumbing yep. jobs and he's just a guy, but we can imagine when a plumber comes to your house, it's this avatar. And at each step of the plumbing task, a different guy swaps in and he knows that particular yeah, part of the task yeah. really well. This person's oh. job. And now this guy can be really this can be really efficient, right? You could have a thousand plumbers each in row who who know how to do a different part of the standard plumbing job. If they do that piece really fast and really well, and this avatar is there doing the job, but a new person swaps in at each new task to get that piece Whoa, of the task done. Yeah, like like mechanical turking, right? They're just pulling in. You just get ported in. It's the next thing on your workflow. Right. It, you see the screen, you move your hands, you do the thing, right. and then the next workflow pops up. Bang, bang, bang. Right, exactly. So you're the guy who puts the solder on the pipe after they've put it together. Then the screen shows up. Okay, here's the pipe. Here's the solder. You do the solder. Yeah, you, that can be that's just like how factories can be vastly more efficient when we divide up the task in front of lots of specialists, all sorts of physical jobs like that can be more efficient. Even your hairdresser, you know, the hairdresser does a dozen different things on your head. Yeah, there could be a person who specializes in, in your bangs, a person who specializes in the final little touch off, right? There's enormous room for specialization. And that's the agglomeration clumping game that I'm talking yeah. about the idea that because it's not just, you know, today you need a hairdresser who's close to you, right? <laughs> and, you know, because of that, they can't specialize that much. There's a limited specialization, but, but it can't be that much. And so you, you can't have very much special matching between them and the skill and the task, et cetera. There are jobs in the world today, like even in journalism or something, where people are specialized with respect to the whole world. <laughs> They're the journalist on this very particular topic, or say the market researcher on this very, very yeah, particular yeah. topic. You can imagine a world where if you were just living in a small town and you were the generic market researcher, you would just not be as good as your job. Definitely not. Then be able to specialize in this thing that the entire world, you are the person best at that particular thing in the whole world. 
your extrapolation of this into physical tasks, well, it, it all feels very economisty, which is, of course, you know, makes sense, right? But you're, well, yeah. <laughs> you're talking about task specialization. You're like painting the future with like the textbook terms I remember from, from you know, Economy right. 101 or whatever. But it's, it's interesting to posit this, that virtual spaces will allow us to, to, you know, differentiate, niche, specialize in really important ways to add a lot of value and hopefully work together better. But even physical tasks, once robots can keep up, if we can port in human brains, we're, we're going to exist in virtual space or we're, we're moving virtual arms, but we're also going to be able to specialize. So y- you see this, I imagine this would have a, ideally a very positive impact on the economy writ large. It would mean that even the people least likely today to be living in a VR world or, or AR world are potentially going to shuffle their way into that as robots become dexterous and capable of being stand-ins for human physical expertise. Is this correct? Right. When you're looking to hire a plumber, you'll have a choice between the physical plumber who lives nearby, who is this generic plumber, but he, you know, has he can he has some advantages of things he can do that the avatar can't, or this avatar international firm who comes in and does things, and you know, eventually that second one will beat out because they'll just be better at it. Yeah. And that means you won't be as eager to necessarily live near where you work. And so there would be a reduction in the density of cities. People would be in cities now more for the consumption, yes. the leisure part, which they can in part do re- remotely. But many people may, of course, prefer to do their socializing in person, which makes sense. But th- that's a, a smaller demand. It's weaker. And so the people who are really into socializing in big cities, they will come into them. But other people don't have to. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, this this pivots me into a, into a next point here around other drives that are pulling us in. I, I, I talk about kind of going in. I remember there was a day, it was like six years ago, going into the Cambridge Innovation Center and growing my e-commerce business. I was still, this is a couple of years after our first interview. And the entire ride on the T, the, the, the subway there, everybody was on their phone the entire time. So there's like maybe 18 people I was on the, the thing with. None of them took their eyes off the screen once. And then when I walked in, like even the people at the desk were mostly staring at their own phones and everybody walking in was staring at their phones. And when I walked in, everybody just had all their monitors up, right? The people that got in early like me, they just had all their monitors up and they had their caffeine. And and it dawned on me, we are going in. And you brought up, of course, a lot of that was related to work, which you've just articulated. The second thing you said was people go in for leisure. So the other factor that I think about, Robin, is drives, right? We we want to be liked by people. You talk a lot about this. The elephant in the mind stuff... The Spinoza's Canatus, good gracious, we could, we could go on and on about right. that. But, but humans have drives. We want to be significant. We want to be liked. Sex is a drive. We, we want our- we're, we're going to be spending a lot of leisure time online because we already all yep, are. Yep. But we'll also want to spend a fair bit of leisure time in person. So people will still want to go to a crowded bar. They might have used the online thing to figure out which bar to go with, with who yes, and when. Yes, and yes, 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 yes. But they'll still want to meet in person at this point. And, and the virtual meeting may just not be as satisfactory for leisure as it is for work, you know, so I'm willing to grant that they'll still have the crowded bars, but a lot of people may be using virtual reality, augmented reality, like their contact lenses might face recognize each person around them yeah. and tell them something about them. And so they can decide who they want to meet and you'll use those things, yep. but you'll still probably want to have a substantial in-person element for a fair bit of social life. Yeah. Well, at least up until X threshold, right? At some point, the tech gets so good that you don't, or at some point, brain-computer interface can just satisfy those monkey drives and you don't have to go to the bar because you can just get it piped in. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of skeptical about okay, that. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. Until we get to the point where my book, The Age of M is about. Yeah. So that's a whole enormous transition. So that's where we take human brains and we scan them and we make a computer model 
of that whole brain. And now that lives in the computer. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. And that's a brain emulation. When it lives in the computer, it will live in a virtual reality that to it looks as real as your world looks to you. And so it's not going to see that conflict. It's just going to have some new abilities you don't have about its virtual world. It can wave its hand and change the paint color if the you know priorities are, are given and things that can jump immediately to a new place in the space without traveling in between and things like that. But from its point of view, it's like it's a physical being with with more magical abilities. We're we're gonna we're gonna get into that future aspect in just a second. I'm gonna touch on your bar point once more because I think this is a fun one. Can you imagine a world? I'm just asking you as as uh, as Robin Hansen here. Can you imagine a world where when when we have the office socialization really down pat, right? We have those portal windows. We have, you know, the right kind of VR, AR headsets where, you know, we bump into people who we need to bump into for that day. We can have casual convo how we want. Can we imagine a space where a similar environment would be set up where it would almost be like an art gallery where you can meet people and maybe it's set up only to be people in a 20 mile radius so that hypothetically, if you really liked them in a virtual space, you could meet in person or maybe right. it's global, maybe it's global, but you're bumping around your own house and it looks like the fricking Tuileries and all the paintings hanging on the wall, and, and there's little windows and vistas where you can naturally have conversations with people, share thoughts and ideas about different things. You're getting to see them and pretty much indistinguishably real version of them talking to you, you know, dressed to the nines when they might not actually be dressed to the nines, but their avatar is. Maybe their teeth are fixed in VR. You got to be careful about that if you're going to meet them in person. But, but either way, can you imagine that as sort of a... Man, a, a, a stand-in for for the bar thing. Can you see that evolving to the point where we're still getting a lot of our social jollies? I can see it taking up a fair bit of the market, and I actually worry a bit be, that it might be too clean. <laughs> so just like go on, today, go I on. mean, well, I mean, the point is, in a lot of ways, when we socialize, we have one official agenda, and then we have some hidden agendas that we don't want to admit to. And part of the problem with this option, it was it will satisfy your official agenda. <laughs> without satisfying your hidden agenda. And then you'll be kind of pushed or pressured to go along with what you said when it's not really what you want. That is, you know, if you if you just have this sort of virtual art gallery thing, someone might say, well, you want you said you wanted to go see art, here's this. And I, if you say, I wanna to go to a real art gallery, somebody might say, but why isn't this just as good? And the, your real reason is because I actually wanted to bump into people in person but I didn't want to say that. And somebody like, sometimes it's an issue with bars. Like in the past, like in a lot of places, bars were just what everybody went to, right? And then there was this transition to where most people didn't go to bars most of the time. And now if you say, I want to go to a bar, that's we're looking at you going, you want to go to a bar, do you? And that's saying something about your what you want to do with your life. Yeah. You, know, you want to hook up or something. Yeah. And that's a message people don't necessarily want to send. In a, sm in a small town where there's a, just a pub, a tavern, and that's just where everybody goes to socialize. There's no social shame or signal yeah. about just going to the tavern. But when bars are a rare thing, now you're choosing to go to a bar that, like, you're, you're having to choose to send a signal that I'm going out of my way to flirt with people or to be physically close yeah. to them. I'm looking you know, for physical relation. And that'll be an issue in a lot of in a lot of relations. Some people will be willing to be open and admit that, okay, yeah, I want to go to a bar because I want to be physically close to people. Yeah. But other people who said, I wanted to go to an art gallery or to a lecture or to you know a sporting event or a concert, they didn't necessarily want to admit that the reason they wanted to go to a concert is maybe they would sit next to somebody hot and <laughs> well, have a conversation. I mean, it, it all, <laughs> it just dawns on me, Robin, hasn't that always been the case? I mean, I know people, I know men, okay, men who are into, who are into like ballroom dance. And I, and I posit the following question to you. Why? 
That's a question I posit to you. Now, I myself, okay, let, let's not let's not extend this yeah. outside of myself because I, I don't like to, I like to be like Montaigne and I like to call myself out as much as anybody else. I would say at age 18 or 17, I started training Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Might there be some, some Freudian stuff going on there? I have no idea. So isn't it always the case that our motive for X could be Y? Oh, of course. But, but the point is when we have a plausible deniability, like, you know, if you wanted to, when there's the tavern in the town, you can go to the tavern and just claim, hey, I'm, you know, I'm lonely at home. I wanted to go socialize. And if somebody says you were just trying to, you know, find a date, you could deny it. You could say, no, 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 this is just the place yeah, 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 yeah. See, But if there are lots of other places to socialize, <laughs> then the bar now sends a signal. If you go to the bar, you're sending a signal about the kind of relationship and activity you were looking for. And if you're not willing to be to admit that, then you are pushed oh, away from the bar. So, so are you saying that there's a potential for a social shaming pressure towards virtual yeah. spaces, towards virtual spaces? Yes, yes, because otherwise, you know, it's like, especially like, say you you meet young girls. Yeah. Uh, you want to meet young girls in person? Now, I know you're going to give the guest lecture at the school, but it isn't an awful suspicious of you that you wouldn't it be safer yeah. to be more distant and do the virtual lecture. Yeah, I mean, I'd be, I, play out. I'd be lying to you if I didn't have at least one presentation that uh, was booked for that reason. But yeah, no, I mean, you know, I, I think there's there's credence to that. So, so you're you're wary that that may force us more and more into virtual spaces. I guess we should talk maybe about yeah, go. There'll be more a signal that you're sending about your choice of virtual interaction versus physical yeah, interaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll have to develop new norms about what that signifies in what which context. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know th those things will evolve. It's really difficult to predict, but I think you're bringing up an interesting dynamic about how much more of a signal choosing to physically be somewhere is, and how maybe that would be suspect and push people to to their little shell where they can do it at proxy. Maybe they could even do it as an avatar of somebody else in an anonymous way. That right now, in the sense that right now we're a lot of us are locked down, and if you suggest to meet someone in person, they are going to say, "Well, we could just meet on video. Why do you want to meet in person?" Yep. And it's something of a sort of thing you'd have to explain to justify at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Right? Depending on depending on where you meet them, there's some channels where it's right. understood, but there's others where where you know again you'd have to you'd have to kind of have a backup there. So I want to kind of get into where this could take us, good and bad. But before we even talk good and bad, I'm more interested in for you, Robin. When you think about us getting pulled in, you know, work is doing it, our drives are doing it, we're, we're getting yanked into this space, you know, a virtual space and experience, you know, I can't ask you to predict 2000 years from now, but maybe you've got a time horizon threshold where you say, hey, Dan, you know, I really think we might be in this totally different human experience. It's much more like this. Can you maybe paint a picture for, for listeners and myself as to, to where you think this has taken us? So my time scale is, say, 30 years from now. And say 30 years ago, I would think that remote work would take from a quarter to three quarters of, of all jobs. All Most work, basically, is being done remotely. And now mostly it's being done through very large sort of international corporations that are organizing very specialized work patterns where you're, you're, you're much more specialized than, say, a hairdresser or a plumber. Yep. You are having a very specialized role. And you're in this international labor market. You are competing with people from around the world. Damn to do this job, whereas before you might have felt that like as long as you're as good as the people in your town at something, yeah. you'll, you'll be pretty safe. But now like your whole town could lose this job because you're not as good as other towns around the world. So you will feel a bit more pressure at this international labor market competition. And you will have to be going with these kind of big firms. And these big firms will be international firms. And 
local nations will lose some of their negotiating leverage against these big firms, just like today in tech, it's hard for any one nation to really regulate Google or Facebook or Apple because they're international firms. You will find, unless we really step up on international governance and scale it up and strengthen it, then you will be facing this relatively, you know, international competition for finding your jobs. But of course, we'll be much more productive as a result of this, and uh, you will, you know, be making more money. But you will be competing across the whole world. Now, in the U.S., you'll probably make more money than elsewhere, but only because you're more productive, not necessarily because of borders have arbitrarily kept them aside. So, this is, in a sense, a a end run around immigration restrictions. (laughs) The labor markets just go global. And so it doesn't matter so much that we've got borders and we don't let people come in the country to take local jobs because the jobs don't have to be local. And there's there's obviously also reasons why we want to let the right kind of people in too, you know? You had a tweet a while ago. It's like, whether you're about more or less immigration, almost everybody's about the right immigration. But anyway, that's its, that's its own tangent. I just yeah. remember that from a year ago or so. But yeah, so I think this ties in, and I actually haven't read... Oddly enough, I haven't read any of Harari's stuff. I, I really rarely read contemporaries. Really, Francis Bacon, and I study what's happening with the trends, and then and then I extrapolate from there. But I think he has this idea of kind of the the folks who just are inherently unproductive because the international workforce is going to be a, a, a fight for the fittest. You know, whether you're a marketer, whether you're a hairdresser, you know, and you can port in and do your stuff through a robot. It, it's really going to be the good folks that are making the good dollars. And you might have been able to cruise, but now you're not able to cruise. And maybe it's just IQ. Maybe it's you know, inherent ability and willingness, maybe it's a bunch of factors, but that there might not just be everybody's making more money in this competition, but a whole swath of folks who just will never compete. Well, it'll be more of an equalization in the sense that at the moment, international borders prevent somebody from Nigeria, say, in competing in your local Boston hairdresser market. Yep, 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 yep. So when they can compete, your local incompetent hairdresser may suffer and do less well, and the competent Nigerian hairdresser will take the spot and do better, right? Globally, that would be a reduction in the variance in the sense that these local barriers are are no longer preventing this equalization. But from the point of view of the bad hairdresser in Boston, they're still suffering. But overall, you see, it's it's the net effect of having this large international market is uh, now your economist hat is on. You're like, well, the net productivity will aggregately be, but I get what you're saying, right? That's not a wrong perspective. What you're saying is, look, things will even out and there's going to be some pockets where people are winners right. and losers. But no doubt people will want some degree of, you know, welfare, safety net. Yep. Uh, the question is just, will that be based on local participation or some larger scale participation? That'll be a choice. Yeah. You know, you could imagine if we don't have more international governance, then it's up to each area to have their safety net. And uh, they just decide how much they want to do. If they've got losers, they want to help them or not. And then places will choose that differently. And some places will have a bigger safety net than others. You know, or we can have choose to have larger scale choices like national or, or continent or worldwide safety nets, in which case then they would be on larger scale. So that's that's harder to predict. I mean, but the basic prediction would be it's just really hard to change these things, so they probably won't change very fast. Yeah. Right? It's just hard to imagine the whole world deciding to adopt strong world governance in the next 30 years. I'm not seeing that. Yeah. So probably will be mostly local. But, you know, the more pain there is at a local level, the more people might be pushed to to consider changes. So you're, you're talking about, you know, I asked, where do you think this is taking us? And I'd, I'd love to, if you could, you know, give us some concrete, how are we going to wake up? 
and how are we going to go to bed day in the life kind of stuff. And I'm not asking you to prognosticate, but rather to extrapolate some of your own ideas and then just, just hurl some, some thoughts out there. One thing you're bringing up is just this aggregate competition factor goes up net. The whole world is more productive, but that's one dynamic. If you, if we look through the eyes of somebody, what will we live like as these trends continue for decades more? You said you're looking 30 years out. Like, What the heck is that virtual human experience like on a day-to-day? A lot of it's just pretty hard to foresee. True, uh, true. The part that I think I can foresee is just more your work life. Uh, no doubt, you know, when we're much richer, we will have a lot more technology and we'll just do a lot more things in our leisure world. But I, it looks like the larger trend is you'll more likely live in a smaller town, not not in the biggest city possible. Uh, people will spread out more because people are kind of happier that way. You will socialize with people in your area more and you will work with other people. So there's going to be more of a splitting between who you work with and who you socialize with. Huh. Not, not necessarily an enormous split, but to the degree you really do like to socialize with people in person. And, you know, staying in a small town doesn't you know, mean you cut your job prospects. You, you can be just as competitive on your job and you can switch to any job anywhere in the world. Well, that probably means that you uh, stay in one place more. You, you don't move as often physically, and therefore you develop a bunch of social contacts. So you'll, you'll have this personal, physical world of socializing, which is different than your work socializing. Now, you will do socializing with work colleagues, but today many of us already, already have this split, right? If you ask among your friends, what's the biggest split? Well, often it's my work friends and my, say, family friends or other friends, or, you know, and that split will get stronger because, you know, if you, if you switch jobs at the international level to some other international conglomerate, then you'll probably be adopting a new set of work friends in the new workplace. You're, you're not, you're not as bullish about the dynamics of going in, applying to friend life than work life. And for some reason, that's somewhat interesting to me because I would presume, you know, let's just say I live in Wisconsin and the cost of living is great, but I'm really, I'm really into, uh, classical Greece and Rome. And there just really isn't anybody around that's down with that stuff. And then similarly, I have certain fashion architecture tastes. And, and so I just want to- I'm influenced by some history of the industrial Go revolution. Go on. So early in the industrial revolution, many writers were imagining where it would go and they were scared. So if you look at books like We or other sort of early pictures of a socialist future, they are painting this world where industrial scale organization and coordination is applied not just at work, but also at home. And those were terrifying dystopias to them. They were they they saw how productive factories were and big organized labor were, and they imagined then that we would reorganize our private lives as much as we do work. Like everybody would eat in a big public kitchen, oh, in a wow, cafeteria. Yeah. The government would tell you who to date. The government would tell you where to live, etc. Tell government would tell you where to wear. You would have again. They were you know what they were imagining is well, look how productive. Uh, in the industrial organization is at work, we'll probably do the same level of organization in our private lives. And that means we will lose a lot of individual control and we will be told what to do. That was this initial imagining. And that's not how it played out. So in our private lives, not at work, we are vastly more less efficient than we could be. <laughs> if we all sort of wore the same sort of uniform clothes and we had standardized furniture and we ate at a cafeteria and we sent our clothes into a you know, to be washed together, it would be much cheaper. It would be vastly cheaper if we lived in dormitories even. And we chose not to do that. That is, we chose to use our extra wealth 
to have a lot of variety and autonomy in our private lives. That's what we chose to spend our wealth yeah, on. Yeah. We could have chosen other things to spend our wealth on, but that's what we primarily chosen to spend our extra wealth on now that we're rich. We don't actually have that many more square feet of building space or that many more cars or that much more food. What we have is a lot of variety in those things and a lot of individuality and a lot of ways that we can each do them differently. So that's how we've chosen over the last century or two to spend our extra wealth. Being organized and efficient at the office, and compared to our distant ancestors, we are hyper-organized at the office and we put up with shit that our ancestors would not have put up with. And I'm happy to go into that. We literally are the robots that people were afraid of at the office, but not when we leave the office to go home. In our private lives, we are much like our ancestors, except we are just much richer and can afford a lot more variety and autonomy and, and deviations. So that's what makes me think that we'll continue that trend into the future, that even though there's enormous productivity possibilities by organizing our leisure world in, in a more industrial way, we won't choose that. When you talk about this kind of emphasis on autonomy in our private lives, rather than sort of some you know conglomerated super efficiency or whatnot, that almost makes me feel like, again, the virtual space would almost be more appealing. I, I don't want to come home to, you know, I live in a nice enough place here in Brookline now. I, I like, you know, I like a, uh, right. I like a place with Corinthian columns in the front. I like a place. It's pretty, right? But, but, you know, it could be prettier. Right. Maybe one day I'd want to wake up and have it look like the, the inside okay, of, so, you know, so, Star Trek or wait, something. Let, let, so let me communicate my keys my key skepticism, which is you've seen a lot of movies lately, like Inception or other sorts of movies or the Matrix, where people put on some goggles and then it's as if they were there. Yep. That's just not going to happen. Even even thirty <laughs> even, even thirty years out. Right, right. Not for humans. For humans, we'll always know it's a virtual world, and it'll always be a little clunky compared to the physical world because you know whatever we paint on our retina in terms of our contact lenses, yep. when we try to move around this physical world, it won't match this physical space we're in, and we will you know have to be careful about that. We will be very well aware that this is a movie we're watching. That if we just try to go into something, you know. So, you know, for example, if this is a virtual world and I see you and I just try to walk toward you, I'm going to hit this computer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? And so it, we won't, you won't just be able to have this virtual world. So you know, people often like put a dot on your, like you see Black Mirror. Of course, yeah. Put a, little dot, put a little dot on their side of their head and now it's as if everything was completely, you know, in that world. That's great for film and, and TV, but it, it's just not going to be feasible. You have to wait for M's for that. When, when we have M's, yeah. then that would be possible. But for humans... The virtual worlds will be things that you can participate in as like a movie and you can do a limited number of things, but you'll know you're limited and it, you know, you'll even get dizzy as people do Yep. when, you know, things spin around too much. Yep. I don't think humans will be very able to just become unaware that this is a virtual world. That's just not going to be possible even in 30 years or even in 60. I think, well, 60 is going to be way harder for me to predict, but I, I, I would say there's credence to that idea. I suspect, I'm going to get into M's in a second, but I'll say that I do suspect that there's also credence to the idea that non-dangerous augmented reality of my physical environment and also non-dangerous oh, sure. portals. You know, if, I, if, I, if I'm into Greece and Rome and I live in Wisconsin, I, you know, having portals of other people that are into that stuff, my leisure activities right. around me might just be better for socialization than the farmer next door. Right. I mean, just like today, you have a window, you look out and you enjoy the view out the window, but you are very well aware that that's a window. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And then you can't just walk through the window and get out there. 
because because that doesn't work very yeah. well. And so similarly, you may have a screen on your wall that shows you a, a Grecian scene of a, an island and, and the deep blue sea over the sunset, but you'll know you can't well, just walk into that yeah. and have it happen. What I, what I was getting at is that I would have windows like I would at work. So when I'm sitting down, I got a window and Jim and, Jim and Sally are over there and I'm going to talk to them about the freaking stapler. I don't know what the stapler doesn't matter in this world. I'm going to talk to them about some crap, but I'm saying that, you know, maybe I'm, I'm out on my, my back deck and I can have some AR, you know, little avatar on the top right of my view where it's like Steve, right. who's also into Greece and Rome. And I talk to Steve every Thursday because he's like my friend. Right, right. No, I, I agree that you can fill your physical world with extra add-ons that are virtual, that are useful. Let's fly into just real quickly, the vision of M's. This is really, I got to, I have to say, Robert. Right. Yeah, Most of your customers probably are not that interested well, of course, in of course. It's a little of, of course. But it's nice to have this image of where things vision, go eventually. vision of where things go. And I will say this, to tee up this topic, Robin, you are the only guy who purports this particular version of the future that I'm aware of. Although I find it interesting. I think it's, you know, there's plausible it, reasons for it. It's a staple of science fiction and futurism for a long time. I'm the one who sort of took it seriously enough to like try that, to work out that, the detail. That, that's, that's it. Yeah, that, that's it. Compared to the, the Gertzels or Roman or whoever else is, is chatting about these things. So yeah, so give us maybe the quick vision of um, A, you know, what it is and B, maybe some time horizon view and then we'll close out talking a bit about power. But but go ahead and, and let us know about M's just timeline-wise. Okay, so as I mentioned previously, M's are you take a human brain, you scan it in fine spatial and chemical detail enough to see which kind of cells are where connected to what. You have models of how each one works and so you make a computer model of that entire brain. This is not something we can do now. It may well take a century or more to be able to do this. But when we can then we can make a model of a human brain that basically has the same input-output behavior. That is, you talk to it, it talks back, and you can hook it up with artificial eyes, ears, hands, mouth, and then it could act just like the human would that you had scanned it from. And an M, the key idea is it could be a lot cheaper. That is, the computer model could be cheaper than a human is, and then you could make a lot more of them, as many, you know, as many computers as you can crank out of factories, you can make as many M's. They are like human mentally, and so they can sit into human slots in the economy, especially when there's a lot of remote work. They're on a computer in virtual reality. They can do the same sort of remote work a human could do through an avatar from somewhere else, but they have a number of differences that would make the world different. So my book, The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life, and Robots Rule the Earth, is all about thinking through those differences. So obviously one key difference is they can be immortal. <laughs> they don't have to die, but they do actually have a limited career length because of their... Uh, their minds would slowly become more fragile, but they can just go back to the original version and make a new copy of that and, and respawn basically. And so making multiple copies is one of the key differences. So basically most of the M world economy is made of copies of the few hundred most productive Ms. And these I call, you know, all the copies of an M in the clan. So uh, most humans, there's not a really big demand for scans of them in this world because they're just not the best. And this economy just wants the best. These M's also can change their speed. So at the moment, you know, humans just run at one speed, but these M's, if you add twice as much hardware, they can run twice as fast. You take half as much hardware, they run half the speed. And so you can match the speed of the M to the task. And I predict actually that M's will typically run about a thousand times as fast as humans do. And they will clump into a small number of very dense hardware cities because there are advantages for their hardware to be near each other. In, they would see themselves in a virtual reality city that was beautiful and luxurious, but the actual city would be just piles of hardware. Is the reason, Robin, the reason that these these M's would have a humanoid form in this virtual environment is because we're scanning a human brain. So what I would imagine is like sort of an, an, exactly. infinite, an infinitely productive thing 
would just have an infinite number of limbs doing an infinite number of things in it. But, but of course, we're working with this hardware. So what you're saying is we've got to just transmute this into as well a use as we can in a very compact little sugar cube. So, I mean, even today, people run a, uh, you know, drive a car, they use a steam shovel, they use a knife in the kitchen. I mean, we are flexible enough mentally to be able to use a lot of different kinds of tools in a lot of different environments. And so M's would take advantage of that too. But I think, especially when they want to just relate to each other socially, you know, showing themselves as a spider with eight limbs and in a, and a crazy, you know, blue tongue of fire that just <laughs> won't be very socially inclusive. Yeah. So unless they're feeling weird, they'll mostly show themselves in the way that other people would find comfortable and be able to relate to. I mean, as you related to clothes, like today, if you think about it, the kind of clothes we could wear is a vastly larger space than the kind of clothes we do wear. That's true. We could show ourselves visually to each other in an enormous variety of ways. And sometimes on Halloween, we do explore that space a bit more. And then you see a lot more weird kinds of clothes and weird kind of creatures walking the streets. But usually we don't choose to explore that space. Usually we are limiting ourselves to a relatively simple space of clothes. Why? Because us. that's what's comfortable. Right. And so just quick sidebar here around where humans fit into this mix. So let's just say, you know, we, we have this giant explosion, you know, an individual human, yourself, myself, clocking at a thousandth of the speed of doing various tasks. Is there a place eventually, is, 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 would the M simulations be what populates the galaxy? The humans start out owning most everything. For sure. And so they sure. are, and they very quickly lose their jobs. And so they are the rich capitalists of this world. <laughs> the humans are on the side owning things, enjoying the enormous growth in the economy. So I estimate the economy doubles roughly every month, then their wealth doubles roughly every month. So they can very quickly get rich from an initial nest egg, but they've lost their jobs. The, the economy isn't very interested in their work or paying for it. And they get pushed aside from the, the central density locations where the M's really are eager to be near each other. They can't afford that real estate. And so they are moved to the side, both socially and physically, but they're rich and they're in some sense getting to spend most of the wealth. So they can buy enormous mansions and starships or whatever it is they, they want to spend the money on. But of course, they need some money to start with. So if you start out with a modest amount of capital, it can grow quickly. If you start out with zero, zero doesn't grow too much. And so the people who have zero capital at the point of this transition, they're the ones at risk. Huh, okay. It seems as though there's two core hypotheses around this being what the, the close thing to the singularity type future that, that, that there would be two hypotheses. One is that determining how to substantially augment or alter existing brains is, is going to be somewhat off the table. Too complicated. Modeling will be easier. And I remember you lightly addressing that idea back in the day. Second thing is that just straight up creating general intelligence, you know, Ben Gertzel's dream style um, is, is also going to be somewhat off the damn table. And that this is going to be the way that the singularity type uh, event occurs. Would, are those two assumptions correct that I'm thinking here? So, so, so roughly, I, I just... I would try to be more precise Please about do. how I said Please it. Yeah, you're yeah, roughly right. So first of all, you're saying that the first way to cheaply produce, you know, human level artificial intelligence is through this kind of emulation. That is, the other mechanisms might exist for some jobs, for some tasks, but it not generally all across the spectrum of things humans do. So that means there'll still be a bunch of jobs for these things to do. So let's, let's imagine among the things we do today, 90% of them are at this point in time taken over by machines. Well, there's still the other 10% of things humans are doing, and this whole scenario plays out with respect to those 10%. Again, so, so from the point of view of humans at the time, they're doing that 10% of things that we used to do now, but still that's occupying their time. And still at that point in time, they lose their jobs to the M's. So as long as 
other kinds of automation haven't taken over pretty much all the jobs, then this still plays out that way. And the other point, as you said, is we're, we're imagining that these human minds that have become M's aren't so in, you know, crazily alien that we can't talk about them. So even if they do get modified in some substantial ways, they are still relatable. And that makes sense to me because look, we are actually pretty different from our ancestors of a million years oh, ago. Yes. We are physically pretty similar, but our social world has allowed us to become really quite different creatures. Yet we think of ourselves as still human. And we think if we met one of those creatures from a million years ago, we could have a relationship, we could have a conversation, we could, we could productively interact, even though there's a lot of things they wouldn't understand about our world and vice versa. And so similarly, these M's, the key point is that they are still recognizably human. They may well modify their brains in some key ways. And I talk about that in the book in terms of what are the most likely modifications and their social world will change in dramatic ways. And that's what I analyze in the book. And so we, our main problems relating to them would probably be because their social world is different. It seems to me like, again, there's a, a relatively firm supposition here that just creating raw, the FOOM debate, if you will, right? The, the FOOM debate that, that with, you know, Lord knows how long ago that was. Now, anybody that's interested in listening in right now, go on Google AI, like artificial intelligence, F-O-O-M. You can see a very lengthy debate that Robin Hansen was engaged with, with uh, one of the, the founders of Miri around whether AI will self-improve at an astronomically quick speed. It, it appears as though your pessimism around fooming is, is sort of also an anchor point to why M's would, would cut the mustard, because it feels as though if AI could expand in exponentially differentiated right. ways, it would just be vastly more capable than no matter how many human sugar cubes you could stack together, it's just going to be a more powerful uh, conglomeration of, of intelligence broadly. But it seems as though for you, that's unlikely. I have a lot of things to say about that. <laughs> so I mean, I'm not sure exactly what to say. So, so one thing is to say is like AI has made a certain rate of progress and I expect that rate of progress to continue. Uh, the rate of progress has been somewhat steady for half a century or more. And I don't see the prospect of a dramatic increase in the rate of progress in AI in the near future. And so I think it's just going to be a long, slow, hard road. Eventually, of course, there are no limits to how far that can go. It's a matter of the rate. So I'm relatively skeptical of this scenario where you have this one discovery that suddenly blows everything open and everything gets easy. That I'm pretty skeptical about, but I do agree that eventually you can do a lot. I just think it's not about one key algorithm or something. It's about thousands of little tools that we collect and improve over time, and we will be slowly getting better. Now, M's are more of a discrete thing because you either have an M or you don't. That is, you either have a successful way to emulate a human brain or it's crap and it's not useful for much of anything. So. When M's appear, that will be a more discrete transition where things change a lot. And then at that point, M's will compete with AI. And I have a blog post about how does brain code differ, where I try to analyze which of these kinds of code will win out where. And I think M's actually have a decent long-term future in being able to compete with AI once they are, you know, have an equal playing ground in terms of the hardware. And I try to analyze which one's where, but, but I, I don't think it's just obvious that AI just blows human minds out of the water once AI is, uh, you know, sufficiently advanced. I, I just don't see that part. I think people aren't giving human minds credit for their remarkable, uh, amazing architecture and organization. There's credence to that. I mean, there's also credence to the idea that, you know, scanning is as, as damn well hard as AI fooming. Although, you know, again, I imagine in the book, you talk about why it is more plausible. The, the thing I, I guess I would suspect is that you know, I have an article called a substrate monopoly, sort of whoever owns the substrate that houses the most intelligence will be the most powerful. 
uh, individually group or what have you. If I if I were running some serious substrate full of M's, I'd probably assign a pretty healthy number of them to creating something astronomically more powerful than they in conglomeration. Like I, I would I would assign them uh, the task of making fooming possible because because that that would seem if if my goal was right if I was a you know big bad guy right you just want to kind of rule the world um it would seem as though that would be the right state of affairs to shoot for um if you got a big well that only up. makes sense if it's possible right yes if it's so possible, even today if, if you, it's possible. Right. If you're if you're running Google, you could assign a Google lab to do a project. If you thought that would help you take over the world, you could do it today. Why doesn't Google do that today? Because they don't see a project like that yep. that will help yep. them take over the world, yep. right? Similarly, I just don't think there is a project like that that you can do. So it's so bold because if you have a if you have a thousand mega geniuses working at a thousand times faster well, than humans, damn man, that's a statement you just made. So again, the key idea is about whether or not the key is a small number of key algorithms or just lots of little things. Yep, yep. And I'm in more into lots of little yep, things. Yep, yep. So I basically think even the human mind is composed of lots of little modules that we will slowly improve. AI is composed of lots of little algorithms. There is no sudden, like you find the one super algorithm and suddenly everything is vastly yeah. easier. Uh, you just have to slowly improve lots of little things. That is the nature of economic growth over the last few centuries. You know, it's very clear that growth that we have seen is overwhelmingly lots of little things. So curious, time will tell Robin, but it, you know, you, you, you carry a very interesting banner in this, in this, uh, you know, relatively small still ecosystem. Eight years ago is small. It's still small today. Yeah. Ecosystem of people that think about these things. And I, I find it fascinating. I want to close on this point and just grab some, some, some ideas from you about as we start to go in, you know, you talked about the next uh, 30 years or so, as we start to go more in, you know, we're spending more work time for sure, but even to some degree more, more leisure time in these virtual ecosystems, things that feel more seamless. How do you think that dynamics of power will change? Power in terms of the most powerful companies, the most powerful countries, you, you'd, you'd mentioned space not mattering as much. You know, obviously remoteness of work is right. going to be very popular. How will power shift? Any, any important insights for you about what's going to be coming up? Well, in the remote work era, firm concentration would increase. That is, you'd have, say, global plumbing firms, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, employing hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps, as plumbers all across the entire world, as opposed to, like, lots of things. So you, you'll have big corporations that have concentrations of power. And that may well, you know, tip the balance relative to nations if nations don't, you know, coordinate as better than they are now in terms of negotiating with those firms. So that's power would shift to those big corporations in a sense, because that's the, a scale of organization. You know, power will shift to whoever can produce the things that are valuable in this world. So there'll be a big standardization, for example. You know, if you want a global market of workers, then you'll need the workers all across the world to be more similar in terms of their education, in terms of their, what language they use, yeah, in terms of yeah, their work yeah, styles, yeah. office habits. There'll be this big pressure to standardize. So whoever is near the center of that standardization can do it easier. They will gain. If you, if you really want to maintain your very distinctive culture somewhere, then you're going to lose out in being able to be part of that big global mm, labor market. That's really interesting. Okay, keep going. Yeah, this is great. I, I think in terms of governance, people just don't, people get really obsessed with international governance or international governance, but it's actually not really that different from local governance. <laughs> Most important innovation and governance will happen at local scales and then eventually apply at larger scales, but it's just a matter of how much we are able to innovate in governance. And that's an open question. I have lots of proposals for governance innovations, but it's frustrating not to be able to get people to try them. And so I can see there's just not a great appetite for governance innovation in the world, which suggests that there won't be that much change because <laughs> uh, they're just not interested in trying it. But stronger international competition may well induce more 
interest in governance innovation because you know these new firms that are struggling to be these international players that might be one of the big differentiators is that they uh, do better at producing their they're doing their governance uh, I don't know but you know that that's an issue yeah so a couple big takeaways I'm drawing here one is that to, to some degree something you brought up earlier is that kind of quote unquote power I mean at least economic you know who's who's using what who's doing what will go more and more based on, I mean, I guess for lack of better terms, merit to some degree. I mean, you know, it feels like the average evening out of hairdressers. But although not some universal moral merit. Of course, of course, of course. Right? It's just some sort of fit with the, the new world, right? Right. So if you speak, that, if there's a standard language, you speak that language, there's standard tools, you know those standard tools, you're in a standard time zone, so yeah. that your hairdresser fit the work hours that people are wanting. You know, you you have a low bandwidth connect, you know, you know, a low latency connection to the where most of the people are who you want to work with. You know, those will all yep. be advantages. Does that merit? Not really, but you know, that you be able to move around to get that. The hairdresser example felt merit-ish. You know, where it's like if I can just do a way better X Y Z kinds of haircuts than oh, right. than you, then it's just like I'm just going to beat you out. You know, that the less merited folks are just going to get shuffled out of the door you know, in some cases, but, but to your point, there's also all these other factors. I happen to speak English. Probably that's a, that's a very fortunate place, you know, to be born in New England and in America, if, if, uh, you know, this, this dynamic extends and, and more other nations start teaching English in order to participate, I just get to sit here without even having to learn something new. And I have to realize that's, that's an advantage. So you're, you're saying that the standards, the norms that start to evolve so that clumping can really happen, the people that are at the locuses of that will often, not by merit, but by mere happenstance, they will also benefit. Exactly. Okay, cool. So two sides of power to think about for those of you who are tuned in. Rob and I, I knew from the from our talk way long time ago that you think fast, you talk fast, and it's always interesting. And today was absolutely no exception. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for inviting me. So that wraps up episode two of eight in this AI futures series about the future of the human experience. I hope you enjoyed some of Robin's ideas about how the world might change and the world that we might prepare for as we run our companies, think about our careers, maybe think about our families and our society. Uh, lots to consider with some of Robin's ideas. I'm always grateful to Robin, not only for joining us in this episode, but because some eight or nine years ago when I was a 24-year-old schmo not that long out of grad school with a deep interest in artificial general intelligence, I reached out to a number of experts whose work I appreciated, and Robin was one of the few, in addition to Ben Gertzel, who had gotten back to me back then and jumped on the phone for an interview with somebody who really didn't have an audience and, and didn't have much to give back to them. So always grateful to Robin for his kindness and being able to share his ideas and hash out really important thoughts and be as open-minded as he is about how the future might turn out. Uh, and I'm grateful that he was able to join us on this show and be able to share that with you all today. So uh, this is certainly an area that I'm passionate about. I think where we're taking the technology of AI is the meta problem. It is the meta opportunity. It is the big picture. Uh, and I'm grateful to be able to have this short series to be able to share some of those thoughts, even if most of what we talk about here is about more near-term impact in business. So if you are looking for more business trends and use cases, uh, fear not, because every Tuesday, as usual, we'll be talking about trends, use cases, and the ROI and strategy of AI. That is our normal topic here on the AI and Business Podcast. But for the next six 
Saturdays. You can tune in and hear more about this AI futures theme, about the future of the human experience. If you've enjoyed this, be sure to stay tuned on the weekends. If not, feel free to just stay with us on Tuesdays. And in either case, I'm grateful to have you here with us, and thanks for tuning in on the weekend. So look forward to catching you for Tuesday's episode and hopefully here for next Saturday on the AI and Business Podcast. 